Beacon's work is derived from research and community-involved information that we've gathered from various stakeholders um, in the entrepreneurial ecosystem in D.C. Women business owners, founders, entrepreneurs, educators, organizations that support women's entrepreneurship, the city of D.C., all sorts of different stakeholders came together to share with us, you know, what is missing in terms of allowing for women entrepreneurs to succeed. This is Groundbreakers, a show about social entrepreneurs and the innovation they lead. Hey there, welcome to another episode of Groundbreakers Podcast. I'm your host, Sebastian DeBurs. On the show today, we have Erica Banks, co-founder of Beacon. Welcome, Erica. Thanks for having me. And so, so our listeners are very curious to hear about Beacon and the mission behind this organization. So the mission of Beacon is to make D.C. the number one city for women entrepreneurs and to provide a supportive ecosystem and to amplify the pieces of that ecosystem that are in service to these women entrepreneurs in a representative way. So what, is, what goes into building an entrepreneurial ecosystem like this for women entrepreneurs in Washington, D.C.? Beacon's work is derived from research and community-involved information that we've gathered from various stakeholders um, in the entrepreneurial ecosystem in D.C., women business owners, founders, entrepreneurs, educators, organizations that support women's entrepreneurship, the city of D.C., all sorts of different stakeholders came together to share with us, you know, what is missing in terms of allowing for women entrepreneurs to succeed, but also what's really working well and what they appreciate about doing business in the city of D.C., And so all of that research culminated in, first, the development of four pillars that really define Beacon's work, the first being increasing access to capital, the second being improving resources and support for women entrepreneurs, the third, creating new business opportunities and strategies, and the fourth, inspiring the next generation of women entrepreneurs, so starting early in our education system. And those four recommendations, those four pillars became the foundation for a report that our Inclusive Innovation Fellow, Dolores Wilson, recently published last month called Building Inclusive Ecosystems with Intentionality, a Strategy to Enhance Support for DC's Women Founders. And so this has all come together in a report that goes back to those four pillars and makes suggestions and recommendations that can be implemented on many levels. Companies at a city level in terms of government, in terms of regulation, in terms of initiatives that are supported, and then suggestions for women entrepreneurs in terms of resources to tap, other companies to follow, other business models to examine, and, you know, for once, localized specific data that's relevant to our community about the state of women's entrepreneurship. Yeah. And so what what can a women entrepreneur here in Washington, D.C. or anywhere in the world do to take the next step? What kind of resources can they tap into? Well, I think it depends on where you're starting from. And there are resources at so many levels that, unfortunately, you kind of have to be in the know or somehow already connected to the ecosystem to find out about. And that's what we're really hoping to do 
with Beacon is to amplify those existing resources and amplify those existing, you know, platforms that are working well to enhance access to uh, share information more freely and widely. And that's why it's so important that Beacon has partnered with Google. And that's what brought me to Beacon is that there are actually so many companies like Google, so many organizations that provide many of these resources and information about the availability of resources for free. But um, it's it's a matter of making that information accessible. Yeah. And so beyond helping entrepreneurs directly with making that information accessible and, and, and supporting their endeavors, what does Beacon do specifically with other companies or at the city level? So Beacon itself is sort of emblematic of, of the work in its formation in that it is an initiative that is a partnership between Georgetown Law School, Google, and the city of D.C. So we come together um, in partnership and sponsorship, but more importantly in real thought leadership about how to form this initiative, how to act on the four pillars that we derived from our consultation with the community, and how to amplify not only our work, but the existing work that's already made D.C. a wonderful city for entrepreneurs, but also, you know, to find ways to make it better. So Erica, let's talk about the state of women entrepreneurship. You know, what is needed for this community of entrepreneurs to thrive? Well, from the start, I think, like in so many things in our society, unfortunately, we have to look at the state of play and its unequal, unlevel playing field. So when we think of women entrepreneurship, even though women make up 50% of the population, they are receiving, in terms of venture funding, 8% of that funding, 20% for completely women-led startups. That number is reduced to 0.2% when you're a black woman founder. And while I think inequity is sort of assumed actually in our society, I think it's not surprising for people to hear that women-led companies or women-founded companies get less capital than male-owned companies. But I think the extent of that disparity is what's not clear and what's not made so public. And part of that is a lack of information because we also have to think of who's doing the research and who's looking into it. The ecosystem of entrepreneurship is already so male-led. There's a blind spot there in terms of what what problems to look for. And so maybe the the issues of, of equality for women in this area are probably not top of mind if women are only a minority of the ecosystem to begin with. Uh, like I said, 50% of the population is women, and yet, you know, I think it's about 40% of, um, less than 40% of businesses are owned by women overall. This is outside of startups, this is outside of ventures. So I think there's a blind spot that has to be filled by other women. And uh, the data here is scarce because of that. So we're trying to also build that knowledge bank of information to make the breadth of that disparity more apparent so that we can work towards actually fixing that. Yeah. And so to work towards actually fixing that, it's really important to kind of really define the problem. What insights have you found in, in this research uh, in the actual extent of the disparities? Yeah, that must have been shocking to really find out what exactly the disparities are. What did you find? So we've actually been able to summarize them in um, the executive summary of our report, which is available online, Um, and I can go through them with you. Uh, The key challenge we found in terms of expanding access to capital, for example, is that women founders are overall underfunded and not appropriately empowered or connected to various funding opportunities. So I think when we're looking at capital, there are two gaps. One is the receiving of capital, but even before that, it's the awareness of what capital exists 
and the avenues to capital. Um, Women and minority founders already lack the necessary social capital and community wealth uh, due to historical disparity and oppression to raise enough funding to even, you know, be considered for these these higher level um, competitions. Local funders in D.C. in particular are not reflective of the demographic of underserved groups in this area. And information asymmetry, what I was talking about a little bit too, in terms of who's doing the research and who's releasing it and how much of that is available, skews perception towards funding streams and actually turns women away from other opportunities. In the area of providing resources and support, our second pillar, Washington, D.C. actually has abundant resources. And, you know, this is in every area. This is why I love living in this city. The entrepreneurial ecosystem is very much thriving overall. But also, you know, as a regular citizen, like we have access to amazing institutions and museums and all of that's free because of where we sit in the seat of government. But So many women founders in D.C. still feel unconnected or disconnected, rather, and underserved. Gaps in information and organization stall the growth of fully functioning ecosystems. There's sort of a one-size-fits-all approach to a lot of education about business as well that exacerbates inequality. And women and minority founders continue to be underrepresented in incubators and accelerators as members of those classes. Resources also... I think are, which is visible in so many ways, are concentrated in particular wards and really quadrants of the city. So, so founders, especially in underserved communities, are also lacking in those hubs of support. And finally, ecosystem norms dissuade participation by certain industries, groups, and institutions. There is a perception, even going into business, that certain businesses are not for, say, you know, people of color or that certain types of funding streams are just completely shut off to to certain groups. And that perception, even if it's a sort of um, self, self-imposed, has the damaging effect of cutting off a group from these necessary resources. So I'm kind of curious, like when you advocate on behalf of this group of people, how do you make sure that their voices are specifically heard? Are you interviewing them, surveying them? How are you making sure that their voices get into the insights that you're sharing? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I've been I've been reading a bit about, you know, when I read profiles of, say, my favorite author or, you know, certain luminaries recently, and I've noticed that quite a few of them were saying that, you know, they're sick of, um, and many of them are, you know, people of color who are sort of like the first, you know, first Vietnamese American to win this or first, like, you know, Black American to do this, whatever. And many of them have noted recently how they're tired of being called a voice for the voiceless or being the only person, you know, to represent their group. And, you know, I think that's a really important, I think language is powerful, right? And I think that's a really important sort of motif to break down. And which is why I appreciated the way you phrased this question, because it's not that the underserved do not have voices. And it's not that because folks are underserved or in the minority that they're, that they are, unable to articulate their needs and need an organization to speak on their behalf. It's more that we need to provide the platform equitably and accessibly for those voices that are out there to be heard and amplified. So the partnership model is really interesting. So so this partnership model here is one I've never heard before. It's a city, it's a tech company, uh, and it's a law school. How did these three walk into a bar? (laughs) (laughs) Strange bedfellows, right? But you know, at the end of the day, or at the heart of it, rather, at the heart of this, it's women coming together. 
So the initiative, while it's a partnership among those three institutions, all three of those institutions, at least in terms of, of Beacon's leadership, are led by women. So the executive director of Georgetown Law Law's tech policy program is Alex Givens. All of the partners from our city, while our direct kind of the office who led this partnership was the deputy the Deputy Mayor for Economic Development, for Planning and Economic Development, uh, Brian Kenner, his staff is led by women. And at Google, on my team, I work on the patent policy team, that patent policy work is led by a woman. And it's, I mean, it's really a team of two. <laughs> so I've, an entirely women-led team. And so I think, you know, at the heart of it, it's, it's women who have faced these inequities head-on in our personal lives and have seen this come to play for the women in our lives, um, for the women in our communities. And we're also women who are privileged to have access to these resources in these institutions to actually make an impact. And, you know, there's a lot of freedom in organizations like ours to sort of, you know, work on pet projects or, you know, pursue. Really, we, we have this amazing flexibility to pursue whatever interests us. And I think there's a responsibility there sometimes to temper that, that option and make sure you're addressing an actual need. And I think that focus is what drives all three of these institutions. We could do all sorts of fun things, and Beacon is a lot of fun, but we want to make sure that there's always the addressing of a need yeah. in that. And so to know, to understand the need deeply, you mentioned that the co-founders are inspired by and have also seen closely observed the women in their lives and the inequities they face. Are there particularly women entrepreneurs or women that you think of when you think of who you're doing this work for? Are there any stories of these people? Absolutely. You know, I think of our, our board and our founding board, um, the initiative on Alex's end. So Alex uh, Givens from uh, the executive director of Georgetown Law's Tech Policy Center came to me with this initiative that she had um, developed as an idea of like sort of wouldn't it be great if with two other friends, Shana Glenzer, who is very prominent in the D.C. tech community and has been a huge advocate for women and women businesses for a very long time, and Anna Mason, who is a partner at Rise of the Rest, which is a division of Steve Case's uh, revolution, and she has just been at the forefront of, of finance and venture in, in D.C. for a long time. And so these three powerhouses came together with this idea and then we're like, okay, how do we make this happen? And Alex brought the idea to me and at the same time I had been thinking about how do I address women's entrepreneurship from both, you know, an IP perspective as that's my work at Google, but also in a way that's really incisive and impactful for the community. And and then from there, Alex had developed this partnership with the city, and um, I had been a partner with the city in, in a in number of ways. So, so it's just that diversity of experiences and of women who are actuators, who have been, you know, succeeding and thriving individually, but also building ecosystems of their own. And on our board, you know, there's, we have kind of amazing stories and just a diversity of of stories and backgrounds. And there's Shelly Bell, who's the founder of Black Girl Ventures. And Black Girl Ventures develops a crowdfunded roadshow pitch competition in which anyone is allowed to contribute and participate, but the winners are always Black women. And in an environment where Black women are only receiving 0.2% of venture capital, 
It's essential to carve out spaces for Black women. And so she is doing that and is that and is a real leader in that. There is Zena Eland, who was one of the founders of Black Female Founders, which has been an incredible community of support for Black women entrepreneurs and women of color entrepreneurs generally in the D.C. area and beyond for years. Um, we also have Julia Westfall, who founded one of the first women-only co-working spaces in D.C. called Hera Hub. We have, um, we just have so many women who have just been really building, building up their communities as they've been thriving in their own endeavors. Yeah. Stuff's moving. Things are happening. Absolutely. DC's transforming. What is, what is your yes. vision for the future of DC? What do you want to, what do you, describe the DC you want to see in 10 years, you know? Mm. So DC is, like I mentioned already, one of the wealthiest cities, you know, in the country. But I think in 10 years, we need to see that wealth more equitably distributed. We need, I think, I would love to see development that is suited to the needs and desires of a community and not just a standard of what development should look like. I'd like to see those kinds of projects everywhere in the city. I want Ward 8 to be able to have as many businesses to shop in as Ward 1 does. Ward 7 as well as like Ward 3. DC already is one of the fastest growing states for women-owned businesses. Between 2007 to 2016, in fact, women-owned businesses in DC experienced an overall growth rate of 51%, which is crazy. And there are 27,000 women-owned businesses in DC already. But, and here's a key point, speaking to that disparity again, 90% of those businesses are unable to afford an, to employ an employee. So 90% of those businesses are run by the women themselves who have started them. So I think success in 10 years would be to raise that rate to at least, I think, you know, 50%. Another point of disparity that would be, that needs to be addressed is that of, of race, which, you know, it's sort of like the elephant in the room whenever we talk about equity issues. White women-owned businesses in D.C. earn nearly $3 billion in receipts. And they own, and white women own 11,000 firms. So 11,000 firms are running 3 billion in receipts. Black women actually own more businesses than white women in DC. 12,000 firms are owned by black women, but their receipts are total, totaling 600 million. Wow. That's less than a third. Even though they have a thousand more businesses. Even though they have a thousand more businesses. So I think it's also necessary to achieve parity in this area as well. So I think, you know, those are the two places to focus on, or three three places to focus on the most in terms of generally as a city, redistributing wealth and development equally and raising the number of women-owned businesses or the percentage of women-owned businesses that are able to actually employ staff and to achieve parity in revenues for black and white women-owned businesses. And so, so what is your story? So... You know, to start, I think my experience and my perspective is really grounded in my identity and how I'm perceived by society. I am a woman. I'm from California. My father is African-American from Texas. I grew up hearing stories from him about how he and his family were not allowed to, to sleep in hotels on road trips. And so they had to sleep in the car at rest stops. And this is, you know, 1960s. 
America um, to, you know, 1990s California, where my father is pulled over by the police because they don't believe that a black man should own a home in a neighborhood like ours. My mother is Japanese from Japan. She came to this country knowing no one except my father. And, you know, she spoke English, but it's still so daunting to cross that border, that cultural and linguistic border. And, um, you know, she created a family and a home here. And um, and so that that Asian immigrant narrative is also a part of my foundation. And, you know, myself in terms of, of my path, um, I attribute so much of it to luck. Um, but I think, and I, and I think that is very much the case. And I was speaking to someone about this, you know, recently, just like, what does, what is the nature of like our opportunities and how do these come about and how are we privileged in, in order to, you know, come from, come from one place and end up completely different that we could have never imagined. And I, I find some, I think it's hard to tell folks, you know, how do you end up when folks ask me, like, how did you get here or whatever, I don't think it's really fair to say I just lucked out. That doesn't really provide a clear path or direction at all. But my friend's definition of luck is where preparation meets opportunity. And, you know, I think that's key. I've been very privileged to have these opportunities. But because of because of where I've come from and, you know, the challenges I've faced, I've always tried to be prepared for any opportunity that could come my way so that when it presented itself, I could take it. Um, I think so often these windows, these windows of opportunity we have are very narrow and um, they close very quickly. And um, I think I've been very privileged in that I've been able to take advantage of the opportunities that have presented themselves to me, even though they were definitely not guaranteed to me or promised to me um, early on. I, I grew up in a very, you know, middle class, kind of idyllic suburban, typical, you know, like kind of the typical suburbs from any like teen movie of like the early aughts um, in California. But it was also a life marked by a lot of fa family dysfunction and, you know, the struggles of being a minority in a, in a rapidly changing community. Um, Sacramento is now one of the most diverse, but also one of the most integrated cities in the country. But at the time when I lived there, that was not the case. So um, so always knowing or always being in, in the minority, being like the only one so often in my, in my classes made me realize that while it's a privilege to be there, there's also a burden of representation and there's a burden of assimilation that has like really just afforded me a lot of opportunities, but also forced me to be very reflective of the impact of those opportunities. If you want to tell us your story or nominate a Groundbreaker, visit our website at www.groundbreakerspodcast.com and make sure to subscribe on whatever medium you're using to listen to this podcast. Our show this week was produced by Anna Batson, and thank you so much for listening. I'm Sebastian DeBurs, and this is Groundbreakers, the story of social entrepreneurship.